Hey, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Luke chapter 4. Um, we're going to land in one of, in my opinion, the most unique stories in the gospel. Um, but we are going through a series called Seeing Jesus. I think there's nothing more important in your life and in mine than seeing Jesus correctly. Nothing will impact your life more or change your life more than seeing and encountering the risen Jesus. And what we're reading in, in Luke's gospel account is him, I imagine the good doctor sitting down, and he must have been short in a beard. I don't know why, that's what happens in my mind. But sitting down with people 2,000 years ago who actually encountered the real living Jesus, who had stories to tell, and he would compare these stories and compile them together and present them in his gospel account. But the story we're looking at today is really unique because there really is only two eyewitnesses to the story that we're going to read. Um, we're going to read the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, which means the two eyewitnesses were Jesus and the devil himself. I'm, I'm fascinated by this story because of all the ones we could have chosen um, to talk about the encounters with Jesus, for some reason this story really stuck out to me because really there is only two witnesses, Jesus and the devil. And in this story, Jesus reveals who he truly is and the devil gets a chance to see who he truly is as well. And, in, and because of that, we all get to learn from this incredible story. Now, it must be important. It must be important because if Jesus was the only person there and his disciples had only heard from it from him, he must have emphasized that this story must be retold because it is in Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, and Luke's gospel. And it is ordered exactly the same way throughout each of those gospel accounts. It's as if he's trying to tell us something. What is he trying to tell us? Well, it's fascinating if you read the progression of Luke's gospel. If you remember last week, we talked about Mary and the birth of Jesus and how when she saw Jesus for who he is, not just in the moment of his birth, but throughout his life culminating on the cross and then his resurrection, it changed her. Jesus changed her. And as a chance to look at Mary, we had the chance to also see how she stood and pondered and treasured the things of God, and it changed her, and we can also be changed by taking the same actions as Mary. But we read through the, the Christmas story, right? We read through the story of Jesus being birthed into the world. Now, if you remember that story, there was another miracle baby born of Zachariah and Elizabeth. His name was John, or John the Baptist, John the Bee, the man. He was the forerunner of the Messiah. He was also Jesus' cousin. Now his calling was unique. It was to be um, a forerunner or to prepare the world for the coming of its true king Jesus. Now Luke fast forwards through Jesus's childhood as well as John's and we re-encounter them in their early 30s and at this point in time John's ministry is taking off. Like people are flocking to come hear who this crazy guy in the wilderness is proclaiming that God is coming into the human story in a unique way. Now we catch up with John as he's on the shores of the Jordan River. Um, now, he's there baptizing people for the forgiveness of their sins. And, and, and this is really amazing because this is a deeply symbolic 
culture, the Hebrew people, and they do a lot of action that is supposed to inspire thought and imagination. And if you were a Jewish person of the day, you would have been deeply steeped into the Hebrew scriptures. Your story would have been their story. And so when you see a prophet coming out of the wilderness, calling people to repentance and renewal, calling them back to God, and he's in the Jordan River, the story would come to your mind. You would see that God is up to something. What is he doing? Well, John is reenacting the Israel story. If you're familiar with the Bible at all, um, the Israel story is fascinating. These people are slaves to sin in Egypt. And God, through his miraculous display of power, delivers his people out of slavery in Egypt. And he brings them through the wilderness where they're tempted and tested and they fail miserably multiple times. And yet God renews them and he creates a covenant with them and he promises them that they will leave that desolate wasteland and enter into a land flowing of milk and honey, a land of salvation, a land of promise. But they must cross through where? The Jordan River to get to the promised land. Now, the vocation of Israel or their calling as a people was supposed to be to represent who God is to the world. To show the world, uh, to show the world God's love, his grace, his mercy and justice. To reflect the image of God to the world and to help reconcile the nations back to God. But spoiler alert, they fail miserably. Um, they do not represent God well, and they fall headlong into sin and rebellion against God. They needed renewal. And that is exactly what marching through the Jordan River was all about. It was renewing their faith and their fidelity and their obedience to God after their failure. Now, you must understand that Jesus did not come to start another major world religion. There's plenty of those, by the way. I think Jesus actually is probably not very fond of religion, at least the way in which we understand it. He comes to birth a movement. He comes to break into the human story and bring renewal to us and reconciliation with our God. And this is exactly what John is doing. He is inviting people to recommit their lives to following the same God who rescued the people of God out of slavery in Egypt, through the wilderness, through the Jordan, and into the promised land. He is calling the people back to God. And this is when Jesus arrives on the scene. He moves through the waters too. See, Jesus doesn't need to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And I've always wondered, why did he do this, right? But this is the reality. He is entering into our story. It's as if he is saying, where you failed, I have entered into the story to succeed. I will bring the renewal once and for all. I will take on the full calling of Israel to be your perfect representation of God to a broken world, Jesus will be our salvation. And as he comes up out of the waters of baptism, if you remember the story, the heavens part open, the spirit of God descends upon Jesus like a dove, and a voice from heaven, the Father in heaven, declares these words, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. The love of the Father is in Jesus. And this is not because of his performance, mind you. This is not because he has done anything um, performed externally in any way, shape, or form to earn the love of the Father. The love of God is in him because he is the Son of God. 
And the love is not some abstract idea or warm, fuzzy feeling. The love of God is actually the tangible presence of God in his life of the Holy Spirit. And believe it or not, this is actually how God loves you too. Unconditionally. That literally means there is no condition in your life that you can create. Nothing you can do that makes God love you any more than he already does. No mistake you can make that makes him love you any less than he already does. His love for you and for me is unconditional. And that is good news. Amen? Amen. Now, this isn't really important to understand the backdrop of this story. Like I said earlier, Luke, Matthew, Mark, they all organize the story in this way because it's important to note that Jesus is filled with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit and he is spoken over, that he is loved by the Father and where will God lead him next? Luke chapter four, verse one. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the palace. No, into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. Jesus always surprises me. <laughs> he always does the opposite thing of what I would do, right? This, thousands of people are along the shores of the Jordan River, and a miracle happens. God literally parts the heavens, and a voice is spoken. Don't you think he should, like, grab all of his followers and march into the city and declare that he's king? But he does the complete opposite. He doesn't move in that direction. He actually goes backwards. Like not physically walking backwards, okay? But if you remember the story, right, of Israel, they leave Egypt and they enter into the wilderness and then they go through the Jordan to enter the promised land. Jesus is leaving the promised land, going into the Jordan and entering into the wilderness. He is moving through the story backwards. Why? Why doesn't he just grab as many people as he possibly can and do that thing? But instead he goes into obscurity. Instead he goes alone, quietly into the wilderness. I could imagine there was probably people all around who were like, do you remember that crazy day that happened 33 days ago? Something happened, but where did that guy go? Where did he disappear to? Why can no one find him? This is precisely what Jesus does. He moves into the wilderness. And not just him, but the Holy Spirit actually drives him into a time of pain and suffering and confusion. Right? This is a crazy story when you look at it like that. Because I don't know about you, but I like the God who always moves me up into the rights where there is no suffering or challenge or struggle, but comfort and luxury and warm coffee, right? Jesus is apart from those things, and he's actually led by the Spirit into that space. About 10 years ago, there's a, a sort of thing that I do every year where I start the year with just a blank journal and a blank page. And I say, Jesus, give me a word for this year. And this one was, um, yeah, like I said, about 10 years ago. And this was the word. If I take you to the edge, will you follow me into the wilderness? And I was like, no. <laughs> I was like, no, no, no. Give me a different word, please. Give me something else. But I just wrote it down and I looked at 
my life over and over again. And I will tell you, that year was not one of my favorites. That's not going to go down in my top 10. But there's this reality that in life, we will have struggles. In life, there will be moments of suffering. We can either move into the wilderness of our lives with the Holy Spirit and the love of the Father, or we can go kicking and screaming. It's a choice. This story invites us to be like Jesus, be led into those moments by the Spirit of God, filled with the love of God. So what is Jesus doing? Well, he's about to have some sort of spiritual, verbal kung fu battle with the devil in the wilderness, right? Earlier I said he was embracing the full vocation of Israel, but God is not just interested in saving and renewing Israel, is he? He has his eyes set on so much more. Israel's vocation was meant to be God's representative to the rest of humanity. But before Israel, there was another representative who was supposed to be God's representative to all of creation. His name was Adam. If you remember, Adam was given a calling in a garden. It was there that he encountered a devil who tempted him to rebel against God and reject his God-given calling on his life. The consequences were that he was expelled from the garden and sent where? Into the wilderness. But here Jesus encounters that same devil, only instead of being in a garden full of sustenance and life, he is in a wilderness starving for food and desperate for a drink of water. Contrast. Where Adam fails, Jesus succeeds. Jesus is not only the true Israel, he is the true Adam. He is not just the Savior and the Messiah of the people of God. He is the Savior of the entire world. So what you see here is so much more than just a few tips and tricks for enduring God's tests and the devil's temptations. This story is an epic showdown between the creator and evil itself. It is the culmination of a spiritual war that has raged on for the ages. Jesus is redeeming the brokenness of the human story, restoring us, and declaring victory over darkness. Now, before we unpack the rest of the text, I think it's important we take a moment and pause. Like I said earlier, the only other being in this story is the devil. Who is he? What is he? Where did he come from? And does he ever really exist? C.S. Lewis once wrote, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Two equal but opposite errors. Let's look at these. The first, an excessive and unhealthy interest. This is the thing, that, this is the thing about the demonic. It's like a baited hook. Right? They're baiting you to lean in. It feels like there's this forbidden or hidden knowledge. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden and their temptation. It feels like as you're looking into the demonic that there's something that pulls you in. They promise of power that they want to give you, but it's just a hook. It's a danger. Jesus said that the powers of evil only want to steal, kill, and destroy Right? One of the titles for the big bad spiritual baddie, his name is the Satan in the Bible, which literally means he is the adversary. What is an adversary? It is someone who stands in opposition against you. Jesus calls him the father of lies, which means he has a fathering spirit. His goal is to deceive you, to pull you away from truth and goodness and love. One of the errors is to look too deeply because you're seduced by his hidden power and knowledge. And the reality is he just wants to enslave and dominate you. The next, to disbelieve entirely. Again, 
Um, If the goal of spiritual evil is to dominate and enslave, one great way to do that is to deceive you into believing it doesn't exist at all, that there's actually no such thing. We explain everything away as mere physical or just superstition, right? To believe we are somehow evolved maybe beyond this primitive understanding of the universe. I think one of the challenges in coming to a story like this is that we actually bring a lot of our own cultural baggage. Um, There's so many different ways that the devil has been portrayed in art and culture throughout history. And then there's what the Bible says. And sometimes these things get twisted and we get confused. Now, um, I want to take a few moments just to look at some of the ways that culture expresses the devil. And and then I want to take a moment to unpack what the Bible actually says. I want to show you a picture often what comes to mind when we talk about evil and temptation. Um, This is Fred Flintstone, kids, if you didn't know. And what you have here, and, and you're familiar with this imagery, right? You have a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other. And the devil has got like a pitchfork. I don't know where that came from. And a weird pointy kind of tail thing. And he's trying to tempt you to give in to your carnal desires, right? He's trying to tempt you to be selfish. And, and he sits on one shoulder. And then you have this other shoulder who's really trying to, he's, he's always pretty weak, right? His arguments are never very convincing, but he is, he's trying to convince you to be a little bit more selfless and to be kind to people and to be good. If this is the picture that you have in your mind, you need to flush it down the toilet. <laughs> uh, my friend Casey and I, we have this saying when we talk about, you know, Casey up here, he's our creative director. We have this saying when we have a mental, like something that goes on in our mind, sort of a construct, that, and we know it's not true. We know it's not right. We say we have to flush it. And for some reason, if you've ever seen, have anyone seen Kung Fu Panda? Anyone? There's the moment when he pulls out the skadoosh. I don't know why, but when I need to flush something, I skadoosh. That's literally all that I got. The other service didn't get that. That one's free for you. You need to flush that picture out of your mind because it is not helpful. Now, the story, that that was wild. But anyways, the story of Jesus' temptation has been depicted throughout art for hundreds of years. Um, often these ideas are also contribute to our understanding of how this whole thing went down. Let's look at a few pictures um, and, and pieces of art that people have tried to depict this temptation um, throughout history. This first is a mosaic from the 12th century, and this is a depiction of the devil. He is this crazy beast-looking thing, right? And, and this is supposed to inspire fear, um, confusion, Uh, this guy is kind of scary looking. If you ran into something like that, I think you would be afraid. Now, this is one of the earlier depictions, but time goes on and um, the way that evil is portrayed changes. Go to the next slide, please. This is one, another uh, mosaic. And as you can see, there's Jesus moving through his temptations. And then you have not this beastly looking guy, um, but now you have this dark figure with horns and wings on. And it's often thought of as the demonic and also angels as well, that they have wings. But believe it or not, angels and demons in the Bible are never depicted as having wings. There are some spiritual beings that do, but never the messengers or the angels of God. And so, however, again, art Oftentimes, culture shapes the way we think about these things. Um, And then my all-time favorite, I think this is the most accurate, is, (laughs) just kidding, (laughs) just kidding. This is not the most accurate. This is Jesus with a hezzy crossing over the devil. That never happened, but I found it on the internet and I thought it was wild, so I thought I would share it with you. This is not my favorite, but the next picture is actually my favorite. Were you trying to take a picture of that? 
You just Google it, Jesus crosses over the devil. It'll pop up. <laughs> this is actually my favorite. I don't even know where I am in my notes. Okay, this is, this is actually one of my favorite um, depictions of this temptation in art. And there's a reason why. Um, I think it's super accurate. Not about Jesus. Jesus wasn't white. But about the enemy. Um, because what you see there is something that looks really normal, especially at the time. But if you look hard, look at his foot. It's like this weird reptile bird-looking thing hiding under the cloak. And this is the idea presented in this piece of art that evil, like creaturely evil, is difficult to recognize sometimes. Like on one hand, it looks very normal, but you have to have a trained, you have to have the truth, you have to know what you're looking for because when you pull the cloak back, what you truly see is what it really is. Like its, it's goal is to deceive you, just in this picture, is to deceive. That is the picture of evil and how the Bible presents it. It's hidden behind things that appear good, but underneath the surface, it is rotten. So let's talk about the demonic for a minute. In the Bible, we're presented with evil not as an equal and opposite force of God, but rather a corrupted spiritual army of created beings, rebelling against God and their created purpose, working behind the scenes to ruin humanity and to try and thwart the work of God in this world. This is also actually how we come to understand sin. What is sin? Well, we often think of sin as just doing bad things, and the Christian life is to stop doing bad things. Anyone ever heard that definition before? But sin is actually much more complex than that. Sin is the corruption of that which is good. Sin is like an infection, a disease. It plagues all humans it's not what we were designed for. It is a cheap and destructive imitation of the good that we were actually created for. So sinning then is when we act into that corruption, when our actions move into the very thing that we shouldn't be doing, not because we, God says no and it's bad, but because it's actually dehumanizing to you and destructive to the people around you. Then temptation is that we would give into and do the very dehumanizing thing that the enemy would like us to do. Matthew Henry once wrote this, Sin is deceitful because it appears fair, but is filthy. It appears pleasant, but it is pernicious. That literally means it is gradually destructive in your life. It promises much, but performs nothing. Sin tricks us into wanting that which we, which we know will destroy us. Sin is deceptive. Sin's desire is to steal, to kill, and destroy. Its desire is to corrupt that which is good. Now, let's talk about this for a second because sin is an equal opportunity corrupter, okay? This is why Jesus does not just come to reform laws, systems, and customs. He comes to renew our hearts, to cure the disease that corrupts everyone. We cannot just change things externally. We need a renewed and transformed heart. Sin is the corruption of good things. One of the visions for humanity through the 20th century was to create a utopian society, one in which humanity would have no need. They would flourish. 
um, that there would be this sort of peace on earth. The 20th century also happened to be the bloodiest century in human history. 187 million people were murdered for the vision of creating a utopian society on earth. Is it a good idea to have a society where people can flourish and do well, right? Yes, that's not a bad idea. But again, sin corrupts even good ideas, twists them, and then it became the most murderous century in human history. There's one massive picture of how sin corrupts even good vision and good ideas and even oftentimes good people and twists them into doing evil. Or perhaps they're given as a, a sort of a vision or, or sold in such a way to make you think you're contributing to something that is good when really it's deceptive and it's behind the scenes and it's ethnic cleansing. That was the vision of that human utopian in the 20th century. But yes, that's a big picture and it's a, a vile and evil. But what about jobs and parenthood and marriage and singleness and sex and games and politics, especially politics, right? All of those things can be twisted by sin. And it is easy to think that the objective is just to avoid those things as if in and of themselves they are bad. But again, if the definition of sin is the corruption of God's good created thing, then we have to respond differently to that which is broken in the world. Now, okay, I gave you a ton of background and context, both biblically, but also in the life of Jesus and then of evil. Now let's go read the showdown in three minutes, right? Like we got, we're going to go a little long, but that's okay. Let's look at it. Verse 2. For 40 days, he was tempted by the devil. Okay, the word tempted in the Greek can be translated either as tested or as tempted. Which one is it? Yes. Right? So here in the story, you have to understand that God cannot tempt with evil. It is completely contrary to his nature. He will never tempt you to do something in rebellion against himself. Doesn't work that way. What God will allow is you to be tempted, and in the process of you being tempted, you will be tested by God. What is a test? A test is what I detested growing up in school, right? A test reveals you for who you truly are. Did you study? Did you prepare? Are you ready to endure the trial that's ahead? So in the enemy's attempt to derail your life, God is going to use it in a way and can use it in a way for your own good. If you're reading the Luke-Acts reading plan with me, you know you read Romans 8, 28 this morning. God can work all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. See, Jesus is, un he is going under the test in this very instance. The test is aimed directly at him, and we have no fear that Jesus will fail. Jesus is going to reveal who he is in the face of the temptations of the enemy. He does not give in to sin. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Verse 3, the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. Remember, Jesus enters into the wilderness with the declaration that he is God's beloved Son. And what is the first thing that the devil calls into question in Jesus' life? His sonship. Are you really the Son of God? Would God really, is, is he really a good father if he would lead you into a time of suffering and confusion for 40 days with no food and no drink, no companions, no comfy bed, no warm shower? 
Does God really love you? And if you really are the son, then go do something about it. It's interesting because Jesus quotes scripture, Deuteronomy 8 to be specific, where Israel was supposed to be the son of God who goes into the wilderness to be tested, to come out and affirming their fidelity and obedience to God. And yet he responds with that very passage and again embodies that he, through his suffering, is the true Israel. And he clings to the truth that he knows that he is the beloved son of God. Where Adam failed, In the comfort and sustenance of the garden and took the fruit, Jesus succeeds in the desolate wilderness and rejects the devil's temptation to create food from stones. He believes it is better to suffer with God than it is to be full and to reject him. He clings to the truth. And again, the devil comes to Jesus. Verse 5, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all the authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The kingdoms of this world are presented to Jesus and everything that comes with them. Power, fame, fortune, comfort. All he has to do is bend his knee. We are presented with the power of the devil here. His dominion has deep roots on the earth, kingdoms and empires that embody the power to dominate, deceive, and control. That's his territory. The question here again is, are you truly the son of God? And if you are, well, what kind of king will you be, Jesus? In the line of the empires of this world? Or will you be a king truly from a different place, the kingdom of heaven? Jesus is presented with the opportunity to embrace this and experience all the rewards that come with it. it. Remember, he's suffering. But instead, he rejects the offer from the enemy by again quoting Deuteronomy. When Israel experienced suffering and hardship in the wilderness, they bowed to idols and they turned away from God. Where they failed, Jesus will refuse to bow. He can see past his present suffering If you know the story of Israel, part of the problem is they could never see past their present struggles to see that long-term God had something so much more for them. Jesus knows that and he knows that his sufferings are nothing compared to the eternal glory that waits for him. He again clings to the truth. Verse 9, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. This third temptation is fascinating. Jesus has responded to each temptation by quoting scripture. And he refuses to compromise in his trust of the love of God. And then the devil quotes scripture himself. Psalm 91 to be exact. He knows the Bible well. This is a psalm about God's protection and his provision. In the wilderness, Israel constantly tested God's faithfulness and provision. Honestly, they were kind of a pain, but they were also a picture of us, so I'll be gentle. But Jesus refuses to compromise. Again, where Israel fails, Jesus succeeds, and he he proclaims absolute trust in God. Verse 13, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him. In an opportune time. 
Now, I want to talk about four things as we wrap up very quickly about how we respond to a passage of scripture like this. It can be really tempting to think of it as a to-do list to endure God's tests and to succeed through temptation. But there's actually a lot um, more here than that. But four things real quick I want to talk about that are important for us. First is Jesus knew the truth. And it's important that we know the truth as well. Jesus responded to God's tests and the enemy's temptations by quoting scripture. But it's also really important to note this, that the enemy knows scripture too. And he actually knows it quite well. So it's important for us to actually read our Bibles, to actually pray, to actually walk with Jesus. I've been very proud of you, church. I invited you to join me on a Bible read-through plan last week. I was not expecting it. 109 of you signed up in the last week to read through Luke and Acts with me for 40 days. That's incredible. The statistics out there, Bo mentioned them on our first Sunday, is that only 70%, uh, excuse me, 70% of people who profess faith in Jesus only read their Bible three times a year. You've already got them beat if you join the reading plan. But you can also join us. And listen, it's not about checking a box. It's about knowing the truth. Jesus said, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus responded to temptation with truth. Jesus also, prayer, so important. Walk and talk with God. If there's one thing I can encourage you to do is that Jesus held on to what words through the, through the entire time in the wilderness, you are my son whom I love and am well pleased, right? He also trusted the goodness of God even in the midst of really difficult circumstances. And that is the reality of the wilderness is it tests us. How much do we trust God? Where is there room for us to grow? And last, I think this is, it's, it's interesting how Jesus is alone in the wilderness, but we are never alone. So important. I mentioned it earlier, promise of God. You, I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus walks with us through the wilderness. Now, we're not to endure temptation or the trials of life alone. You're actually invited to do that in a community. Look around you, guys. You are not alone. It's so vital and important. Now, if you are trapped, you right now heard my definition of sin, to dominate and deceive and destroy, cover you. Listen, there is freedom in the name of Jesus, right? Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide you a way out so that you can endure it. The first part of that says this, if you are human, you have been tempted, and you have given in to that temptation. You are not alone if you are struggling. We have an amazing group of people that meet here on Thursday nights. They're called Celebrate Recovery. If you are struggling with addiction, pornography, sex, um, uh, power, uh, drugs, alcohol, gambling, work, any of those issues, there's a community that will walk through this with you. And you don't need to feel shame because like the scripture says, we have all been tempted and every one of us has given in to sin except for, and this is how we come to the table today. If you have um, com your communion elements, will you pull them out? We have all given in, we have all been tempted and we will continue to, but Jesus. See, there's a temptation in these stories to come at it and to think that the goal is somehow to walk away with perfection, right? If I only do these things, if pastor gives me the checklist of things to do, then I won't give in to sin. That is not the point. This is a story about grace, not perfection. And what we hold in our hands is about the perfection of Jesus, but not ours. If you go ahead and open the top with me, 
You can hold the bread at top, as if you know. We're going to hold the bread in our hands. What we do when we come to communion is we remember that Jesus accomplished what we could not. Adam could not. Israel could not. The point is not about us being perfect. The point is about him being perfect. The point is not about us perfectly enduring temptation and trials. He wants that for you because he doesn't want you to be dehumanized and broken by sin because he loves you. But the point is to embrace that the only way that was ever even possible was by Jesus. As we hold the bread, we're reminded of his body. He physically showed up into our story. He moved backwards, left heaven in the comfort of his kingdom and became a human being to enter into our story and be all the things that we could not be. We take the bread in remembrance that Jesus shows up in our story. You take the bread with me. Flip your cup upside down and be careful. (laughs) What we hold before us is a little bit of grape juice, but it's supposed to be symbolic. Um, As the bread was symbolic of his body, the cup is symbolic of his blood. Him showing up into our story cost him something. Right? He endures 40 days, 40 nights, no food no drink, temptation beyond what any of us could bear. Why? For you and for me. It's by his blood that we've been cleansed, by his sacrifice that we've been set free. And what we get now is to take the cup with gladness and joy in heart for the grace of our God to enter into our story. Will you take the cup with me?